This is an ABC podcast. So technology facilitated abuse is essentially a form of interpersonal violence, harassment or abuse, but it's perpetrated using mobile, online or digital technologies. So it's many of the behaviours that we've seen play out in the past that have been done physically, now being done online or in digital contexts. Because regardless of where or how it happens, the differences in place or platform, abuse is still abuse. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense, and our guest is criminologist Asha Flynn from Monash University. So when we think about behaviours such as monitoring and controlling another person, so for example, keeping track of where someone is and who they're with, that used to be done in ways of, say, following someone around and turning up at places that they would be. Whereas now when we talk about it in the digital context, it can involve monitoring someone's phone, tapping into their GPS system, going through messages or, say, Facebook or other social media accounts, using people's passwords to access their information and engaging in those types of sort of stalking behaviours, for example, in online ways. And Asha's latest research suggests that one in two of us have been a victim of technology-facilitated abuse or will be over a lifetime. And just as disturbingly, one in four will be perpetrators. We are seeing slightly new forms of it. So, for example, sexual and image-based abuse is something that's been much more common since the use of technologies has come out. So this can include things like unwanted and improper offensive sexual messages or taking an intimate image of someone and then sending it on to others without their consent or threatening to send it on to others without their consent. And we've also seen it play out in the context of using AI technologies, which is a sort of new and emerging thing. And we're seeing people having their images deep faked. So essentially it can be a picture of your face and it's deep faked onto pornographic imagery as though that's a real image of you in a pornographic image. And that then gets sent around to other people to impact on your career, your reputation and your mental health and wellbeing. And the prevalence of this form of technology facilitated abuse, according to your recent research, is not only significant, it's increasing. It absolutely is. So we found, and we had a nationally representative study, which means we were able to actually represent all the different demographics within the Australian context. So we can see it as being quite reliable in people's experiences of this form of abuse. And this was equally prevalent among women and men. But of those who were most likely to experience victimisation, there were very clear intersectional dimensions. So we saw very high rates among our more minoritised communities. So, for example, Indigenous and First Nations people, respondents who identified as having a disability, and also people within the LGBTQI plus community. This is Australian research, but is the situation likely to be similar in other like-minded countries like the United States and, and Canada, for instance? We would think so. We would think that the rate of tech-facilitated abuse is becoming more prevalent and more common globally, particularly as we know that there is no barrier, no kind of boundary or border to digital abuse. So someone can be being perpetrated against by someone who's not even in Australia or who is overseas, but we would imagine that there are similar rates. We have done some research on image-based abuse specifically. So this is the non-consensual 
taking, sharing or threat to share sexual or nude images of another person without their consent. We did some research on this in New Zealand and the UK and also found very high rates. So it was one in three people were experiencing a form of image-based sexual abuse in their lifetime. So it is something that is becoming more prevalent and something we really need to be responding to through laws and other sorts of support networks. Is the increase in part simply because technology is so cheap and it's so clever and so easy to use? I think it would have a lot to do with it. And it's also something that's become such a part of our daily lives, particularly since COVID, when we all shifted everything we do online. So whether that's work, our social intimacy, friendships, catching up for drinks with people became a Zoom event. So the fact that we've started to become more familiar with technology and it's becoming more something that we engage in daily, it also means that we're accessing it more and using it in ways to abuse people that we might not have done, say, five or ten years ago. You found that surveillance was a big part of this. So is most of this abuse, is it about trying to control another individual as opposed to, you know, simply venting against another individual? So we did a survey as well as doing interviews with 20 victim survivors and 10 perpetrators. And in terms of the motivations, uh, the main motivation was around wanting to control or frighten or humiliate the victim survivor. And there was also uh, an amount of wanting to express anger. So this was often in the context of a relationship breakup where someone felt that they wanted to maintain the control that they'd had over that person in their relationship, but also wanted to hurt them or, or make them fearful or angry for having left the relationship. What are the health impacts of this form of abuse on victims? So there are some really significant health impacts. We've seen victims reporting physical health abuse, as well as a large range of mental and emotional health problems. So within the survey, we found that almost one in three people said that they felt depressed and they had significant impacts around being afraid and fearful for their safety. Many of our victim survivors in the interviews would provide stories of feeling physically sick every time their phone would ring. So I guess one of the issues is the omnipresence of this type of abuse so that you can't escape it. When you're being abused on, say, your mobile phone, which all of us carry with us and have next to us for every part of our day, even next to your bed at night, if that's the way that you're being abused, it's very difficult to escape or shut off from that. So it's this idea of constantly feeling controlled, becoming paranoid and anxious in engaging in any kind of online communication with others. And that really impacts on people's lives in terms of their capacity to engage with others, their capacity to work and their capacity to to just do daily things like sending an email can cause emotional distress. And uh, yes, there's a social and a a health consequence from this, but an economic one, as you say, it would interfere with someone's work and then uh, presumably the state has to step in to pick up the, uh, you know, the cost of that person's health care from these problems in, you know, further down the track. It's similar to when we look at the economic costs for family and domestic violence where we see that it's costing the Australian taxpayers essentially billions a year to be able to deal with the implications of what's going on. So for this year, we're looking at things around overall, the healthcare system being impacted, people being able to access supports, but we're also seeing it in terms of people's own financial resources. So many of our victim survivors reported that they had to seek new employment, they had to leave their jobs, they had to find somewhere new to live um, and relocate their lives and factors like that, which can all cost a huge amount of money. 
Do we know whether the perpetrators of this form of abuse, do we know whether they actually see what they're doing as abuse? It was really interesting talking to perpetrators about their experiences. Now, many of the ones that we spoke with were reflecting on behaviours that they'd engaged in in the past, so they were at a different stage of their lives. But it was interesting to ask them about the harms that they had caused and many expressed that they wanted to make the victim hurt or be angry and have issues like that. But at the time, they didn't necessarily realise what they were doing was wrong or that it was causing the types of harms. It was just about getting their motivation fulfilled. So it was about wanting the victim to feel afraid because they were angry about what had happened. So it was interesting to get their perspective. The other factor that came out of those interviews was that many of the perpetrators didn't realise that what they were doing could potentially be considered illegal. So they didn't realise that the extent of what they were doing is not only causing these significant harms to the victim survivors, but also that society has said that this type of behaviour is not okay and they could face criminal charges as a result. Now, this abuse, of course, occurs within a social context, a context where on many online platforms, you know, discussion is quite robust and angry and aggressive. Does the normalisation of that kind of behaviour on social media platforms, does that complicate the understanding of this issue? It certainly does. And I think we have seen a real normalisation of bullying behaviours and sort of aggressive interactions online. If you have a look at anyone's sort of Twitter account, you can see that someone might post something and then someone will post a different opinion and it can become quite nasty. And it's something that we're more accepting of. And that will lead to us feeling like this type of abuse is okay. We've also seen it, for example, in relation to sort of monitoring or surveilling behaviours. So there's a lot of apps out there for parents, for example, to be able to put something on their child's phone or their child's digital watch to be able to see where their child is at any point in time. And the message of that to the child is, oh, it's because I love you, I want to make sure that you're safe. But when we start to normalise that behaviour, it means that as that child grows up, they understand that to be the way that you express love and that's how you understand and keep someone safe. So we normalise this idea of knowing where someone is at every point in time and that can also lead to this type of acceptance of these behaviours. Why is this issue? Why is it so difficult to regulate or police? It is very difficult. There's a number of reasons, a number of factors that come into play. One of the main ones is that there remains this view that online violence or abuse is less serious and less harmful than offline physical forms of abuse. And our research continues to tell us that this isn't the case, that the harms and the impacts are just as significant, if not more in some instances, as we talk about the omnipresence and the ongoing nature of the abuse and being unable to escape. So there's issues like that. It's also problematic in terms of getting society to understand the impacts of tech-facilitated abuse. If we think about cyberbullying, for example, and most people look at this in the context of children, there's always that old argument of, oh, well, everyone was bullied as a kid. You just need to learn to deal with it. And now that's moved online. So you just need to learn to deal with it. And that creates, again, that normalization that you identify, that that we see this as being just part of growing up or part of life and fail to recognize the seriousness. And there's also just a lack of say, training among police and also among other support workers who are going to be first respondents to dealing with tech-facilitated abuse. And it's not to say something negative about police because I do understand that they deal with 
all <laughs> the issues and it's very difficult for them to be up to date with everything that's going on. But many of our victim survivors reported that when they did engage with police, they were considered to have their matters like were quite trivial. So the police didn't take them seriously or gave inappropriate advice such as, oh, just shut off your social media, just shut off your computer. So we really need to make sure that we're improving awareness and understanding of what tech facilitated abuse is, why it's wrong and what the harms of it can be within society. And once we start to do that, we can start to see better responses to it. Associate Professor Asha Flynn from Monash University, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Future Tense, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. In October 1957, Sputnik 1 entered low Earth orbit and the history books, the world's first satellite, and for a short while, the only one. But it's a very different environment up there today. Today there are literally thousands of them. Some government owned, many operated by private entrepreneurs. And according to space governance expert Melissa Deswart, the need for serious regulation is now upon us. Professor Deswart has helped pen a new report on the issue ahead of an important international forum to be held in 2023. There's quite a lot of law that applies generally to space. So we know that we have the international legal framework, so the five UN space treaties that govern space per se, but they don't distinguish between, you know, the various orbits. We also have general international law. And then we have domestic law, which is in Australia governed by the regulator, our Australian Space Agency, which looks at basically at launch and licensing, but also we have, you know, general commercial laws such as competition law and liability laws. So there's quite a lot of law, but what we're looking at is really the specific uses that are made of low earth orbit. And of course, another area that's relevant is the use of spectrum for communication. And so that's governed by at the UN level by the International Telecommunications Union, but then in Australia by the ACMA, which regulates spectrum here in Australia. So a lot of law, but it's a question about being specifically directed to how that fragile environment is really being used. We tend to think of spaces as unlimited, but when we're talking about low Earth orbit, is it much more limited than many people think? I think all of space is actually more limited and more fragile than we think. And and even getting to space, for us to get to space, we have to go through, you know, our own atmosphere and, and into orbit. And then once things are in orbit, they're moving incredibly fast and orbits are fixed, okay, by the physics, by the science. It's not like roads where we can kind of build other orbits on top of other orbits. So once things are there, until they degrade and hopefully, you know, burn up on re-entry, then they are there and they can pose a danger, risks to other things once they're in that environment. So the fragility really relates to the speed and the potential for congestion. And, you know, there's only so many things that can occupy that particular area. And we have seen quite a significant increase in activity, haven't we, in satellite activity within low Earth orbit in the last couple of years in particular? Enormously so. And it's because of the emergence of the commercial space operators who are able to deploy things in low Earth orbit for a very, very low cost. This is a low cost, more agile solution. 
So in terms of sheer numbers, what are we talking about? Can you give us a, a, a kind of an idea of how that increase has occurred? I can give you a sort of ballpark figure because there's more and more launches taking place every day. So by the end of December 2020, there were nearly three and a half thousand satellites in orbit, and that had been about a 40% increase over the last five years before then. So the proliferation of those satellites is just going to go up incrementally because there's so many providers who are now lodging licensing applications for large constellation satellites. So we're probably going to see those numbers double relatively quickly. Primarily, mega constellation satellites are used for communication. So we've seen with the recent example of the deployment of Starlink to Ukraine, in that instance, they've been providing internet connectivity in the event that, you know, the physical cables or even the submarine cables, for example, that we rely on for internet connection and communications are destroyed or disrupted. So the promise is that they will be able to provide communication connection to more remote areas where it's too expensive to provide a physical internet infrastructure, but they also can be deployed quite rapidly and moved around. So it's predominantly used for communication, but clearly, of course, could also be used for observation and also things like Internet of Things connectivity. And we use Internet of Things to control sensors on all sorts of things like maybe operation of robots or remote mining, but also for things like environmental monitoring. So in terms of regulation, we've got to be careful, haven't we? Because we still want to enjoy the benefits provided by satellites, don't we? We absolutely do. And of course, the benefits are extensive. The problem is that we have to think about what the risks are as well. So we we know that there's risks about congestion, for example, of low Earth orbit, but there's also concerns about the fact that a large number of these satellites might interfere with our relationship to the night sky. So that sort of light pollution or disruption of, of the night skies is another thing that needs to be taken into account. So regulation needs to cover the responsible use of low Earth orbit. Given the sheer size of activity, given the speed at which it's happening, what are the implications of failing to properly regulate this area? The way in which they're predominantly regulated is, of course, related to licensing of communication spectrum. But if everybody can get up there and everybody does, then it's really a problem of the proliferation of space junk. One good thing about low Earth orbit is that it does really facilitate the sorts of satellites that tend to last only for a short period of time, so five to six years, so with the view that they will degrade and hopefully burn up on re-entering the atmosphere. So it may not be a problem in perpetuity, but again, responsible uses that enable that need to be implemented and regulated for. Is there a danger of a country or a company in future taking unilateral action, if you like, and, and deciding for itself what is what is and what should be permissible in low Earth orbit. There's always the chance that a state may deviate from the requirements in international law to impose certain licensing conditions, but hopefully not. So the Outer Space Treaty is one of the most extensively subscribed treaties under international law, and that imposes on countries a requirement that they are responsible for activities that are undertaken by their nationals or occur from their states. So in a sense, there is an obligation under international law that states regulate both their state activities in space, but also commercial activities. 
What kind of regulation, balancing the risk and opportunities, would you like to see put in place? Could you give us some concrete examples? The sort of regulation that would be useful would relate to the number of satellites that any one operator can deploy. And that needs to be determined by what is really needed and what the justification of the use is so that it's not allowing one country or one operator to dominate. I think the most important thing is the implementation of debris mitigation guidelines. So at the moment, we have non-binding principles that require the application of end of life destruction or removal of satellites. And under, for example, under Australian law, there is a requirement under the licensing for debris mitigation plans to be developed and put in place. But I think it's important on a global level that there is responsible attention to complying with the guidelines that relate to the non-proliferation of space junk. So you, you want things that can degrade, that can degrade safely, and that they will be removed regularly and over a short period of time. So we don't want space junk, for example, um, falling on us too regularly as we've had over the last few months. This latest report was compiled with an eye to the World Radio Conference, which is to be held next year. What's the significance of that particular gathering? The purpose of the gathering is to look at the regulation of spectrum. And so the ITU, International Telecommunications Union, regulates spectrum on a global basis. And it's been much easier for us to think about it in the context of geosynchronous orbit, where essentially an orbital slot corresponds to a particular spectrum. With low Earth orbit, of course, you're going to have competing uses of spectrum. So the conference really examines evolving and new uses of spectrum and ensures that 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 is allocated efficiently on a global basis and can be implemented by the domestic regulators. So it looks at what are we actually doing in communication and what uses of spectrum are being made and new uses coming on board and have we made allowance for those new technologies? So even though we talk now about low Earth orbit being used for internet connectivity, there's already new ways of communication that are being trialled and tested in low Earth orbit that are very different from what we think about as sort of traditional broadcast or you know one-to-many type of communication. Melissa Deswart from Flinders University and Deputy Chair of the Space Industry Association of Australia. And a warning also from researchers at University College London that the pollutants released into orbit from rocket launches could ultimately be far worse for the environment than global emissions from aviation. Associate Professor Eloise Moraes. This is really to do with these dark particles, black carbon. So we're really comparing the climate effect of black carbon or soot particles from rocket launches to these soot particles from aircraft. So it's not the other greenhouse gases that are produced from aircraft. So what's happening essentially is that when a rocket launches, it's releasing these soot particles into multiple layers in the atmosphere. And it's portions of the atmosphere where it takes a really long time for these particles to settle out of the atmosphere, two years or more. And so with that sustained presence in the upper atmosphere, they can contribute to warming for a longer amount of time than soot particles released from aircraft. So that's really what separates the two is is the release of these particles into these higher layers in the atmosphere. And from memory, the majority of the rocket fuel causing pollution is kerosene based. Is that correct? 
Yeah, there's a lot more rockets that are making use of of kerosene and much larger rockets as well. So SpaceX has predominantly used kerosene and SpaceX is increasing the number of launches each year. And so that's leading to an increase in kerosene use. But of course, SpaceX is planning to start using liquid methane, but unfortunately that also produces soot particles. So it's not going to get rid of the, the contribution to soot particles in the upper atmosphere. Do we know what level of damage has already been done you know, by the, the space industry over recent decades? We have some idea. Um, so our simulation works towards answering this question because we represent 2019 rocket launches and then the speculative space tourism industry. And so with our 2019 rocket launches, if those emissions are sustained, uh, we're estimating noticeable influence on climate as a result of the soot particles, a very localized impact on stratospheric ozone because the ozone depleting substances still are fewer than the ozone depleting substances that come from our earthbound industries. And that local effect on stratospheric ozone is occurring predominantly in the Arctic, in the upper layers of the stratosphere and in springtime. Take us through how you actually calculated your findings. We put together an inventory of the air pollutant emissions that come from rocket launches. We targeted 2019 at the time. That was the most complete year. And we implemented these in a chemical transport model. And so this chemical transport model is a 3D representation of the physical and chemical processes in the atmosphere. So it's able to capture things like uh, how long the soot particles persist in the upper atmosphere and also the reactions that take place to deplete ozone. Importantly, we coupled this model to something called a radiative transfer model, which allowed us to calculate the climate impact of these soot particles. Now, you and your colleagues have warned in this report that if the space tourism industry really does gain traction with investors and consumers, that it could undermine the success that was achieved by the Montreal Protocol back in the late 1980s. Just remind us what that protocol was about and what it achieved. Yeah, the Montreal Protocol is held up as as one of our most successful environmental regulatory bodies because it led to the ban of ozone-depleting substances, a shift towards cleaner alternatives that has led to a measurable improvement in the stratospheric ozone layer. And it was motivated by the fact that the stratospheric ozone layer is an important layer that protects us from harmful UV radiation, not just humans, but plants uh, and other processes that take place in the environment. And we're seeing a very measurable improvement in the stratospheric ozone layer in the portion where we're seeing rockets start to undermine that, or at least this um, speculation of a, a space tourism industry. So that is the Arctic springtime in the upper stratosphere. We've estimated that if the space tourism industry becomes a formidable force, we might see an undermining of about 16% of that progress. One could argue that launching satellites, say, you know, that that has significant benefits for society. But when we talk about space tourism, given it's a non-essential activity, do you believe it should be banned? Yeah, it would be very strong of me to take that point of view that it should be banned, but it is an exclusive activity. Only the uber-rich can afford it, and all of the space tourism industry players have rockets that produce air pollutants that have the potential to impact climate and also deplete the stratospheric ozone layer. You argue that serious discussions about regulating the space launch industry are long overdue. Do you expect this report to help change the situation? Will it increase at least a knowledge of the problem? 
I would hope so. There's been a lot of media attention on our paper that I hope will will start to motivate sort of a multidisciplinary community that can come together to discuss viable regulation. It shouldn't just come from the environmental scientists. We should also understand from the rocket industry what's feasible from policymakers as well, what could be legislated. Uh, I really hope this does provide the motivation that we need. And given your background in this area, was there anything that surprised you about this research? I think what surprised us the most was the size of the climate influence or the potential climate influence of rocket launches in general, but also the a potentially large uh, space tourism industry. When we compare a soot particle from aircraft and from earthbound industries to a soot particle from rocket launches, we're seeing a 400 to 500 times greater climate effect from rocket launches. And this is this is a really large number. And what it says is that if rocket launches increase substantially in the future, uh, they don't have to grow to the size of the aircraft industry or the airline industry to have a comparable effect on climate. Eloise Moraes from University College London. And her research was conducted with colleagues from Cambridge University and also MIT in the United States. This is Future Tense. My co-producer is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.